Good morning. Thanksgiving is a special holiday. For us, it's a time when all our family gets together. It's a time where we get to celebrate, look back, and just thank the Lord for his goodness and his mercy towards us. Jamie, I'm hearing a lot of, yeah, thank you. But I have a question for you. How many of you had family over this last Thanksgiving? Quite a bit. All right. How many of you had complete strangers over this last Thanksgiving? Brave people. Wow, wonderful, wonderful. And that's what I expected. Not a lot of us invite just complete strangers over to our house. We don't. That's uh, usually moments like this are reserved for intimate family. It's usually reserved for intimate uh, close friends who are, you know, we want to share those moments. There, but there are moments that we share with absolute strangers. How many of you go to a Patriots game and it is filled with your family? It's not. Those are moments that are reserved for complete strangers. But we have something that we form in both these instances, both whether you're at Thanksgiving, around the table, you form this sort of a tribe around you. You form this family around you. But at the same time, you go out to the Patriots game, and guess what? Everyone's yelling the same thing. They're always yelling. They're always rooting for the same team. Well, at least the Patriots fans are. They're all rooting, and there's sort of a tribe mentality. There is a family that's formed there. Seth Godin, he's a big time, uh, he's a great writer, um, entrepreneur, great guy. If you don't follow him, definitely do pick up a book of his. He defines tribe like this. In his book, Tribes, he says, a tribe is any group of people, large or small, who are connected to one another, a leader, and an idea. See, we often form tribes around anything and everything. One such tribe is meeting tonight at 4.30, And they will be yelling and screaming at the other tribe who is meeting at 4.30 at the Jets and Pats game. Right? These tribes exist. They don't just exist out in the world. They exist right here in the church. Look around you. You'll see plenty of tribes. There are the seniors. There are the retired, the employed, the unemployed, the Republicans, the Democrats, the hipsters, the hipster wannabes, the boomers, the Gen, Gen Xers, the Gen Yers, the Facebookers, the Twitter, Twitterers, the Snapchatters, the Instagrammers, the wealthy, the not so wealthy, the preppers, the extroverts, the introverts, the dog lovers, the feline enthusiasts, the toilet paper goes over, the toilet paper goes under. <laughs> Just side note, toilet paper just go over. The safe paper is. <laughs> The safe spacers, the polit- politically incorrect, the Italians, the Americans, the Canadians, the Pakistanis, the friends, the Indians, and the list just goes on. We could form tribes all day with this group. Well, with all these tribes in place, all these people here, we never have conflicts, right? You obviously sense my sarcasm there. With so many people, of so many persuasions, what happens when there is a conflict within the tribe? Within the space that we call the church, what happens when there is someone that we disagree with? When someone takes a stance on a topic, whether they are conservative or liberal, what happens, how do we address that conflict? How do we address 
differences of custom and race and culture and politics and the other lines that divide us, no matter who you are and how open or accepting you are, you will still have a group of people or a person who is extremely difficult to have in your tribe. How do you deal with a Christian who is a little on the rough side? A Christian who is a legalist, a Christian who is a liberal. How do you deal with those who profess faith in Christ, but you cannot seem to to agree on anything else? How do you deal with them? Paul attempts to answer, actually he does answer it, Romans chapter 15. And we just heard it so beautifully from Lewis a moment ago. In Romans 15 he says, and I'm going to read verse 7. Romans 15, 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. See, we're all prone to be in tribes. Given an issue, we'll take a side. That's just who we are as, as humans. That's natural. We take sides. But the thing about tribes is we're restrictive. We'll take a side and then we'll push everyone else who disagrees with us out. The problem with tribes is that we're not good at welcoming people who are in other tribes. When I was in high school, my family decided to move from New York to Atlanta, Georgia, right in the middle of my senior year in high school. Rough time. Got there the first week, and you know that game you play. Go down the lunch line, grab your food, And then comes that dreaded moment of, where do I sit? You know the politics behind it. You know the the fear and the angst that goes along with it. So I play this game of grabbing my lunch and beeline to the corner. And then I scan the room, look at which table looks the least threatening, and go for it. So the next day, I would do it again go to another table. Eventually, I made friends enough that I would find a table to sit at. See, we're prone to make tribes wherever we are. But when someone new comes in, someone we don't agree with, someone we don't understand comes in, how do we react? We sometimes close our groups to those who are of a different mindset than us. Sometimes as Christians, we reject other Christian tribes because they may be aligned a bit differently than we are on an issue. We may do this intentionally or most times without even being aware of it. As a matter of fact, the age we live in and the technology we use make it so much harder to gauge this. In the aftermath of the last election, there's a lot of speculation going on. How did we not see this coming? How did we not know that Trump was going to become president? There's a lot of debate going back and forth between the two sides saying we have to figure this out. One policy that was put forward, one, one concept that was put forward is called the filter bubble. Anyone aware of what the filter bubble is? You're not. You all live in a filter bubble. If you're not aware or not. If you have a smartphone, hold it up. All right. Every one of you lives in a filter bubble. You see, what a filter bubble is, when you sign on to Facebook, when you sign on to social media, when you sign on to Google or to any one of the search media sites or the search sites, 
There is content that is customized to your preferences. There is content that's customized to your affiliations. There is content that's, affili- that's customized to the way you think. So if you go on Facebook and you like a few posts, the next few posts will be based on what you liked. And so if you are a conservative and you like only conservative posts, guess what? For the next few months, all you're getting is conservative posts. If you're a liberal, the same thing happens. And so what this... what um, Eli Prasier, he's the one who put forward this concept, and he says what happens in, in such a technologically advanced world is that we live in these filter bubbles, and we are never exposed to the other side's arguments. We're so much entrenched in our own tribe that we often don't, uh, we're not even aware of what's happening on the other side. And that's one of the arguments put forward to say, this is what happened with, with Brexit. This is what happened with the election here to, uh, this, this last month. In a technologically, technology-driven world, our tribes are often reinforced without us knowing it. And it makes it harder for us to welcome people that are not in our tribes. As Paul's writing to the church at Rome... You see, that church was unlike any other. In that age, in the first century, there was no other group that would bring men and women and children of all socioeconomic classes. They would bring the rich and the poor, the free and the slave, all together in one gathering. See, the Roman church was made up of many tribes. In our church today, not just Mount Hope as a global church, we're made up of tribes. We bring our personalities just because we call ourselves Christians. We don't put all our personalities aside. We don't put our race and our culture aside. We don't put our affiliations aside. We bring them all with us. We even have denominational, denominational tribes in the church. You may have heard of this one Baptist preacher. He recounts the story. And in his words, he says, one day, I saw a man on a bridge about to jump. And so he goes up and he tells the man, he says, don't do it. He says, no one cares about me. No one loves me. And the preacher says, God loves you. Do you believe in God? And he said, yes. The preacher said, so do I. Are you a Christian or a Jew? A Christian, he said. Me too. Protestant and Catholic. He said, Protestant. And I said, me too. What franchise? He said, Baptist. And I said, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. And I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist. And I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes Region, or Northern Conservative Conservative Baptist, Eastern Region? And he said, Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes Region, and and the preacher said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes Region, Council of 1879, or Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes Region, Council of 1912? And he said, Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. And I said, die heretic, and threw him off the bridge. (laughs) 
in the Christian church today, the tribes are numerous and our divisions are wide. We have divisions across lines of theology, worship styles, practice of what, how we live, our rituals, the way a lighting looks in a church, the way we dress. We divide over these things. We form tribes. In the Roman church that Paul is writing to, the major tribes that were there were the Jews and the Gentiles. And over chapter 14 into chapter 15, he's looking at the church and he's saying, there are divisions amongst you. There are weak and there are strong. There are some of you that says you should do it this way. The others say, no, you should do it this way. And he's saying, the, he's saying to the strong, be become weak. He goes on and he's coming to a conclusion into this address to, the, to this divided church. These groups were not getting along that well. See, in the Roman church, there was the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, and they didn't see eye to eye. When there is a conflict that is not addressed, there's going to be a divided church. When there's conflict that's not addressed, there will be a divided church. A divided church is a disabled church. A divided church is an ineffective church. A divided church is able to accomplish nothing. Why is this such a big deal? And why is Paul so concerned that these two factions welcome one and uh, that they welcome each other? What is he trying to address here? What's the problem? Can, he, can we not start a, a, a first Jew church here and a first Gentile church here? Hey, if we did that, we'd all worship well. Can we just not split ways and just do our own thing? Why is Paul saying, let's get together, let's worship together, let's welcome each other, let's be a part of each other's lives, let's be a part of each other's worship, let's be a part of each other's community. What is so important? And what is he trying to tell us today? Despite our differences with each other, and if we started talking to each other, we would realize we are different. We'd realize that we're made differently. We like different things. We have different backgrounds, different experiences, different personalities. But Paul is saying, welcome each other. Why should we welcome each other? He's given us two reasons. And in verse 7, let me read that again. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. He's sensing this discord between the Jews and the Gentiles in that church. And he's writing to them. He says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This morning, we started on the Advent journey. For the next few weeks, we're looking forward to Christmas. We're looking ahead and looking at that time where we will celebrate Christ's birth. We're looking at that time where we'll celebrate the fact that Christ came. Christ who would give up his rightful position, his rightful glory in the heavens above, and he would give up his space, and he would come down to this earth as a human. He would come down for the one reason that he would die on a cross so that you and I would be restored to his tribe. We're looking forward to that day. In verse 3, Paul is saying, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who have reproached you fell on me. 
our curse, the anger that was directed to us, our sin was heaped on him. In Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us here sitting in this room today, within the earshot of my voice, each of us had fallen short of the glory of God. Each of us needs to look back, and each of us needs to look at this, this Advent candle, and each of us needs to reflect on that Christ, on God who would come, who would leave his glories above and come so that you and I would be restored. No matter who you are in this room, we have fallen short. We have no way of accomplishing his will or his purpose for our lives without his help. Christ welcomes you and me into his family. He takes away our sins. He restores us into good standing with God. This is, he gives us a new identity and he says, this is who you are. We were once on the outside of the tribe and he welcomes us in. We are the tribe of God. Christ welcomes us in. He establishes our new identity, whether you're, you, you, uh, you're ethnically a Jew or American or Canadian, South African, Ugandan, or Chinese or Indian. You are now a Christian. That's who you are foremost. Because Christ establishes us and establishes our new identity, we do the same. We welcome because he first welcomed us. Charles Spurgeon, in a sermon, he says this thing, and he says it so beautifully. He says, Christ did not receive us because we were perfect, because he could not see no fault in us, or because he hoped to gain something from our hands. Oh, no. But in loving condescension, covering our faults, and seeking our good, he welcomes us into his heart. So in the same way and in the same purpose, let us welcome each other. We welcome each other because Christ welcomes us. We welcome each other because Christ took that effort to come welcome us into his own. Secondly, he's saying in that same words he says, for his glory. When Christ welcomed you in, he did not do it because of you. He did not do it because he saw something great that he wanted to, he wanted to capture. He did not do it because you earned, his, earned that honor somehow. He does it for his own glory. He does it for the glory of God. The ultimate aim of Christ and his people is to display the glory of God, the beauty of God, the greatness of God, the perfection of God. All of creation, all of redemption, all of church, all of society and culture exists to display God, writes John Piper. Christ welcomes us into his community, into his family, into his tribe. Accepting one another is not for our own benefit, but instead it's for the glory of God. When you reach out and when you accept those who you don't agree with, it's painful, it's hard, but it brings glory ultimately to the one above. We welcome each other because Christ welcomes us. We welcome each other because it brings glory to God. When we do not welcome each other, the converse happens. If by welcoming each other, we bring glory, by not welcoming each other, we bring dishonor. When we create divisions and when we create separation between inside the family of God, between other Christians, we bring dishonor 
to his name. In our own tribes, whatever that may be, it's okay to have a tribe. But the moment you stop welcoming the other, something's wrong. When your church, when your community looks very much as a clone of yourself, something's wrong. We have to welcome each other. We're very fortunate to be in a church where ethnically we have so many ethnicities represented. If you're ever here in October when we celebrate global outreach, you see the, the flags that are lined up. Last count, there were 34 flags. There are 34 nations represented here. That is a picture of what, what the body of Christ looks like. We are all from different races. We're from all different ethnicities. We're from all different persuasions. We're from all different likes and dislikes. But yet we have one thing in common, and that is Christ died for us. He welcomes us. Amen. When we do not welcome the other, we dishonor God. But then again, you're asking that question. How do I deal with that one who's a little rough around the edges? How do I deal with the one who just seems to be, seems to pull out an argument every time I talk to them? How do I get along? And even to you, Paul is saying, welcome them as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. With the Christian of another tribe, your differences may be too great. Your personalities may clash. Your political philosophies contradict. And your worship styles may be different. Yet all these reasons are secondary to your identity and to your call to glorify God. We are called to glorify Him. In welcoming the other, we glorify the one. Let me say that again. In welcoming the other, we glorify the one. When we welcome those around us, we partner with the work of Christ. We bring, bring glory and honor to God. If so, the converse is true. When we do not welcome uh, into our community those around us, we hinder the work of God, bringing dishonor to him. Mark Damas is the pastor of Mosaic Church of Central Arkansas and the author of Building a Healthy Multi-Ethnic Church. He writes this, and it's, it's interesting how he, he, he brings this out. He says, let's compare a multi-ethnic church, very similar to ours, to a multi-generational family. Assume for a moment that grandma, who's alive and well, lives in the same house with you, your spouse, and several children of varying age. Now, in your home, one tradition involves the family meal. Indeed, you expect the entire family to come to the table when dinner is served. However, one night, you arrive home only to be challenged in this regard. On this occasion, grandma has arrived early to help feed the baby while you and your spouse set the table. Your 12-year-old twins enter the room arguing over television rights. Nevertheless, they're seated and it's time to pray. At that moment, however, you realize that someone is missing. Your teenage son is not at the table. Heading upstairs to see what's the matter, you find him playing a video game in his room. He's wearing headphones so as not to be disturbed. Why, you inquire, are you not at the table? Did you hear mom say it's time to eat? Oh yeah, he replies with a touch of attitude. I heard her. 
But I'm not coming to dinner tonight. Mom's serving meatloaf, and I don't like it. <laughs> now, let me ask you a question, Mark, is, uh, he's asking. If you were a parent, how would you respond? <laughs> I hear some snickers. I hear some... <laughs> I recognize this. This is my, my every day. No matter how many times I've asked that question, the author writes, the answer always comes back the same. It's likely that you too would tell your son to go to the table whether he likes it or not. And in, do in so doing, of course, you would teach him a profound lesson. It's not about the food, it's about the family. Look, son, you might say, I don't care what we're eating tonight. You're coming to dinner because you're a part of this family. You see, it's not so much the meal, but the memories we make that's important. And so when you're not there, we miss out on all that you contribute, and you miss out too. Sure, it's meatloaf tonight, but tomorrow we're having pizza. Who did Jesus die for that you and I have a hard time Accepting. Let that question sink in. Who did Jesus die for that you and I cannot accept? We need to remember that Christ died for them too. His grace rescued me and you, but his grace also rescues them. Yes, there are different tribes. Yes, there are different mentality. Yes, there are different denomination. But Christ died for them too. He came to welcome you so that he may bring glory to God. The only way we bring glory to God is when we follow his example and welcome the other. In welcoming the other, we glorify God. In welcoming the other, we glorify the one. At this point, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit brings to your mind someone that you need to welcome into your community. But you may be thinking this person is just too much, too much to bear. He or she is too hard to take on. How do I deal? How do I welcome those who, are, who I have such a hard time with? To answer that, in Romans chapter 15, Paul answers that. In verse 1, he says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. See, Paul is writing that we have an obligation as Christians to other Christians. He uses the Greek word, ophelo. When you translate it correctly, it means you owe them. There is a debt that needs to be paid. He's saying you owe this to the other Christian. And it's a present tense in the, in the sense that we're continually under obligation. That obligation doesn't end anytime soon. You owe them. Paul is saying that we should patiently bear each other. There might be aspects of their character. There might be aspects of their personality. There might be aspects of their belief that you may not agree with. But Paul is saying, 
We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. He's saying, bear up the weaker brother. If you feel that you're stronger in a certain area, bear up the, certain, the other brother. He says, please the weak. That's a little tricky there. He says, don't please yourself, please the weak. You see, this is not pleasing man as he addresses later on. It's not man-pleasing. Instead, what he is saying is, be careful not to compromise your core beliefs, but do what it takes to bring the other brother along in his relationship, the other sister along in her relationship with Christ. In Galatians 10, 1 verse 10, he's saying, am I trying to please man? Paul is grounded when he's saying this. He is not saying this in chaos or in confusion. He's saying, am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of God. But yet he says, please the other. In other words, he's making it very clear. Crucial issues about the content of the gospel when they are at stake do not change the gospel. Do not please. But when it's issues of preference, when it's issues of likes and dislikes, he's saying sacrifice your own so that you can bring up the other brother. Sacrifice your own so you can edify the sister. That's the role of the stronger Christian. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. See others as Christ sees them. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Paul is writing in issues that do not challenge the gospel, in issues of preference or style. We are to please the other Christian. We are to show grace and mercy to the one we disagree with because this works towards strengthening their relationship with the Lord. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. And in verse 6, he's saying that together you with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You may have heard the old adage, united we stand, divided we fall. Paul is appealing to his church, united we glorify God, and divided we dishonor him. He exhorts us to put aside our preferences and our lifestyles so that the other is built up. He's saying in the church, there's an amount of self-sacrifice that is required of each of us. It's not a request. It's an obligation. Paul instructs believers to maintain unity for the purpose of glorifying God. Welcoming the believer who is unlike us or is not as strong as a believer or worships differently is hard work. It takes a lot of effort on our part to reach out. It takes a lot of grace on our part to say, you know what, I concede. It's difficult to welcome the hipster at a biker church 
or the urban outdoorsman in a suburban wealthy church. It's hard to build multi-ethnic churches where racial discord exists, but it's work that needs to be done. It's incredibly hard to get along with all our political ideologies, but it's work that needs to be done within the church. The divisions that separate us are incredibly hard to navigate. In 2011, during the Super Bowl, Coca-Cola came out with this ad. And John, would you play it? See, Coke nailed a crucial, a critical truth with this commercial. We all have incredible differences that divide us. Our tribes have different ideologies. But we have one incredible reason to be united, and that is Christ. The divisions that separate us are hard to navigate. But instead of letting these issues about disputable things divide the body, making a division between the Jew and the Gentile, making a division between us in this church today, we should receive each other as Christ receives each other. We should receive each other. We should welcome each other for his glory. Because when we do not, the world looks at us and they say, look at this church. They can't get their own act together. You see, a united church brings glory to the one above. A divided church, a quarrelsome church, a fighting church brings dishonor. We can welcome the other harmoniously beyond our racial, generational, ethnic barriers. We can receive each other when our tastes of music, food, and leisure differ from each other because we have a, a much stronger, a much bigger bond and that is Christ. Because he welcomes us, we can welcome each other. Would you imagine with me a church that sees each other as Christ sees them? A church that is unanimous and unselfish in its, pur in its purpose, in welcoming each and every believer. It's not a common reality, but we can strive to become that. Let us not be known for our exclusivity, but rather for the way we welcome the other believer. Call the worship team up. In welcoming the other, in welcoming someone of another tribe, we glorify God.
in welcoming another, we glorify the one. Would you bow your heads for a moment of prayer with me? Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we confess we have much work to do in this place. We confess in our own hearts we are divided. But Holy Spirit, would you heal the wounds that divide us? The wounds that dictate our separation from each other. Lord, I pray that even in this church, that we would reach out to the other. We would reach out to those who we disagree with in love, in grace, in mercy, because that's what we received. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.